you have a Bible, and there's one in the pew rack in front of you if you didn't bring one, and the page number would be 1789. Um, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If this is your first time here ever in a while, um, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're only starting, going to be just starting chapter 3, but the best Easter passage in that book is in chapter 15, so we're going to kind of skip ahead and skip back. Um, I like those little bulletins. You like those little square bulletins? That's either Lisa knowing that I'm not going to say anything of consequence today or John wanting to make sure I don't preach too long, which actually didn't work very well in the last service, but I, I will this one, I'm, I'm sure. So, um, but those, the back of that is used, people take notes on that because a lot of high point people are in small groups through the week where they discuss and then try to apply the sermon to their life more specifically, which is kind of fun. Okay, I need to, I'll go get this for myself. Um, sorry, I left my Bible over here so I can't... I need it. So let's read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Okay, ready? And if you're new to church, then this is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a, a church in a city called Corinth in Greece and trying to explain to them how to understand their faith and live it out. So chapter 15, verses 1 to 11 says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect, so I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. The passage starts out with something that I think is important for today, and that is in the first verse it says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. Which is kind of funny because he says then, which the gospel which you've received and which you've taken your stand. That's kind of funny, isn't it? He's saying, you've already received it, you believe it, you've staked your life on it, now let me remind you what it is. Right? But it's partly because as human beings, sometimes we really underestimate how much we need reminders. We tend to be people that think we know a lot more than we do and that we remember it a lot longer than we do. We learn things a lot slower than we think and we forget things a lot faster than we hope. And so one of the things that we need a lot is reminders. Um, one of the recent occurrences of the Gibson family is that we actually find, just found out recently we're going to be having a fourth child, which was, yeah. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah, you were ready because you had that last service. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, this was an unplanned event in our life, 
and um, we've had months of discussion, just kind of gotten to the place where Lexi was like, I finally got the place where I was like, okay, not having one. And we were talking about, you know, of course she was, knows the Lincoln, so of course we're going to adopt nine or ten kids from China. But, um, <clears throat> but she sort of got back to that, and so this, is, this surprised us. And so we're, you know, we're trying to like decompress this over the, over the first week, and um, I kind of noticed that Lexi was being really nice to me. And she's, I mean, she's pretty nice all the time, but I mean, she was just especially, I mean, she'd come, she'd put her arm around me, and I'd be like, that's really nice. And so after a, a day of this or so, I was like, baby, um, you're being really nice to me. And she's like, well, is, is that bad? I thought that would be, no, I was like, no, it's great, but just, I'm kind of wondering why, you know, why you're being so nice to me, I guess. And, and, and so, and I said, you know, I, I wonder, I was just wondering if the reason is, because you were reminded that you need me. <laughs> and, and it was funny because she, she came right back. She was like, yeah, that's part of it. <laughs> and, I, and, and, it because, and it wasn't just because, it was because I was feeling that too. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to have another kid. There's going to be four of them all against us. If we're not totally on the same, like ready to fight against, and I, I just, I need her. Like, I'm, we, and so we just had this like very intense reminder of how badly we need each other when we got this news. And so, and we've, listen, we've always believed that. We've married almost 13 years and, you know, we, we believe that, you know, sorting out problems and staying close and talking to each other and blah, 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 blah. Um, relationship, 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 right? And we believe that stuff and we pretty much practice it, but it was really helpful to get a very intense reminder. Um... <laughs> One of the books that the staff and I re have read together is a book called Sticky Church by a guy named Larry Osborne. And one of the things he said is, you know, one of the things we don't realize is that pastors are supposed to bore the congregation. They're supposed to bore the congregation. If you do not bore the congregation, you're not preaching properly. And the reason he said is because of how we learn. He said because when you come to church the first time and you hear something you haven't heard before and it sounds mildly plausible and it seems like it might help you, you've got this initial reaction of inspiration where you're like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I really learned something. That's really helpful, right? And so you go in, you feel like you really learned something and that, that feels worthwhile. And so then you come back and if, in a month or two later, you know, you hear the same thing again, right? And you, go, and you go, oh yeah, I remember that. And you have this familiarity moment where you're like, yeah, right, of course, right? And then you hear like, Again, and you're kind of like, really? C come on, shouldn't you be reading during the week or something, like getting new material? Isn't there some website you can download at least mediocre sermons from? Right? I mean, you just feel like, I know this already. But here's the problem. It may bore you, but you don't really know it yet because knowledge that will actually help you in really any field, but very much so spiritually and morally, is if you cannot call it up spontaneously in the moment out there in life when you need it, you don't know it. When that moment happens and you need to know that thing, see, it's not, okay, have you ever tried to sing along with a song and when you're listening to the radio in your car and you're by yourself and they're singing along with you, you know every single word of the song. But the minute the words are gone, it's like just, the, you don't, you're, you're surprised. You just like know, like, you know like six words without being prompted. It's just you don't really know the song. But as long as you're being prompted and singing along with it, you've got it. That's what a lot of us, that's what our knowledge is like. And so here's the problem with nominal Christianity. Like I'm stored into Christianity. I go live every once in a while, but I'm not. Really, here's the thing. That's all you ever know about Christianity. You just have nominal knowledge. You just have to sing along with as long as the singer's singing along with knowledge. And so when life happens, you can't call anything up that you need. 
And not only is that the case, so, so we have to get beyond boredom to the point where we really have mastery, where we can call it up when we need it. Now here's the second problem is we forget it a lot faster than we think. Not only do we learn it a lot slower, but we forget it a lot faster. And if that's the case, then it would make sense that if God really wants to teach us something, he's not just going to tell us once. He's going to tell us multiple times. He's not just going to tell us verbally, but he's going to have us do things with our bodies that, like, re- that reinforce it. And he might institute things that we should do to cause us to remember. And so the Christianity has a bunch of these things. And if you look into the Old Testament, there were seven festivals in the Old Testament that the Jews were commanded to have every year. Right? Seven of them. And they were all moments where you need to remember God. Right? So when you were saved from slavery in Egypt, the Passover, right? And then there's a week-long festival that follows that. And then the Day of Atonement, when God takes away your sins through the sacrifice of the Passover or the, um, the Atonement Lamb. And then there is when the harvest comes in, the, the Festival of Weeks, where you, you celebrate the fact that, yeah, it grew out of the earth, but that God ultimately gave this to you. And so at all these moments, God's like, listen, you need— you need to remember and be reminded of the fact of how I'm involved in this. Now, it's not just enough to remember. In all of these cases of Old Testament festivals and in the stuff that Christ commanded in the New Testament, that is, baptisms that we'll celebrate at 1215, right? Weekly worship services, much like the weekly Sabbath services. And then communion, right? Have you ever heard of Maundy Thursday? That just sounds like a weird name, right? Maundy, what does that even mean? Maundy Thursday. It means mandate. That's what it means. It means the the Thursday of mandate. When Jesus instituted communion and said, you're always going to do this. And he gave it as an ordinance, meaning he ordered us to do it. Maundy Thursday is the Thursday of mandate, right? And it's a celebration. Communion is supposed to be a celebration. You'd think there'd be more wine, but it's supposed to be a celebration. Because it's not enough to be reminded, God wants to remind us in such a way as to force us to be happy. I said that way intentionally because we get our, we oftentimes get our ire up when we're commanded to have an emotion. But listen, if your kid gets a gift at Christmas time from somebody graciously and they don't say thank you and they don't act pleased, you get mad at them. Why? Because when you are supposed to have an emotion, it is the proper and right emotion to have, and you don't have it, that is a misbehavior and a moral defect. Emotions are not completely spontaneous. The fact is, when the kid doesn't say thank you, you know they're not thankful. If they were thankful, they would feel thankful, and they would act thankful, but they don't. Why? Because they're, they don't see it as a free gift that they've received that is more than they could possibly want. They see it as something less than that, what they're entitled to, and so the emotion of thankfulness isn't really necessary. There's a thinking problem that's created an emotional deficit and an action issue, right? And so God is perfectly happy to say, you're going to have a party, and it's going to have this much, these many lambs and this much stuff, and there better be wine and blah, 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 blah and, you, and you're, you better enjoy yourself. Why? Because if you don't enjoy yourself at Passover, you don't really believe you were freed from slavery in Egypt. If you don't enjoy yourself on Yom Kippur, you don't really understand what it means that your sins were atoned for. If you don't, if you can't be happy at harvest time, you don't really believe that everything that you have and own and that has been given to you by God. You don't believe that. If you believed it, you would be happy. 
And that's why God commands festivals. He commands joy. Because it's not just enough to be reminded. We have to be happy. Because, here's why. Nobody changes without joy. And this is important because when the apostle says that perseverance is important, right? He says, by this gospel you are saved, that is rescued, if, pesky little two-letter word, you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. What does that mean? It means perseverance is necessary. It's not optional. We've got to make it. Why? We've got to have the fortitude of character that carries us through. Well, how does that happen? Does it just happen through self-discipline and good British and Scandinavian upbringing? Not really. That helps. But there's got to be something inside of you that will continually fuel what's necessary for transformation. And that thing is joy. It is a happiness in God, and that comes from a recognition of grace. When all entitlement goes away, we see ourselves as lost and without any ability to demand. And then when God steps in and freely gives, the resulting emotion is joy, and that joy fuels everything. And we have to be commanded to be reminded and to be happy because we're not naturally people who remember, and we're not naturally happy creatures. You might think of yourselves as a naturally happy person, but as long as you're a human being, you're not nearly as naturally happy as you could be or as it would be reasonable to be. I mean, think about it. Why, if you believe in the resurrection, why, why didn't we all come in doing car wheels this morning? I mean, there's that one girl in the flower dress, but I mean, everybody else just kind of walked in. I mean, just kind of, oh, look, it's Easter. And it's, it's partly because we're, we're humans and our emotions they, they regulate to our normal surroundings, right? So if everything's fabulous, right, what happens? We just get used to everything being fabulous. And it doesn't really do anything for us. And I've been in places in the world where, in terms of living standards, it's very low. But people don't seem to be constantly um, angry about it unless they have a television. Because their expectations are down here. That's what life is like. And so emotionally, they come in line with what, with what exists. And so we naturally are going to flow away from joy and towards a flat-lined heart. And what happens is there's nothing left to push us into life in a way that perseveres and that makes us emotionally strong. You see how that works? So, so then what are the two things? There's two things in this passage that the apostle is trying to get across. The first is the gospel's content, and that's verses 3 to 7. You'll have to look in your Bible because I don't have a slide for this. It says this, For what I received, meaning I, he's saying, I didn't make it up, I received it. I passed it on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve, more than five hundred at the same time, and then James, the apostles, and then me. So he appeared to lots of people. So the content is his death for our sins, his burial, his, his being raised from the dead, and his post-resurrection appearances. Now, when it says that Jesus died for our sins, the theological term we use for that is called substitutionary atonement. That is, our sins were atoned for by means of a substitute. 
Um, that is, all through the Old Testament, if you go to the book of Exodus and Leviticus, it's all laid out with animals, right? And so for a thousand years, Jewish people were commanded to take, take a lamb and to put their hands on it to signify a transfer of guilt, and then the lamb is killed, bleeds to death on this altar, and that was supposed to be a symbol of transference of guilt and innocence. But it says in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it says, you know, if you, if you, if you think about it, a, a, a non-moral creature, I mean, it doesn't say it just like this, but a non-moral creature like a, a goat can't undo human moral defects. It can't really do that. All that animal could ever really be is a symbol for something else. Some other innocent, morally pure, willing, substantive sacrifice that could pay for our sins that a transaction could really be made. Meaning, all that could ever point to is Jesus. That he died for our sins, that is, in our place of penalty, so that we could receive the transition of receiving his righteousness. So that we can have a perfect standing with the God who created us for himself, so that he can express his infinite character to us, and we can enjoy it forever. That he was buried, that is, he was really dead. He really was a complete sacrifice, and that he was raised. And scripture says that he was raised for our justification, meaning that if Jesus simply died and was never raised, you and I could never know the real effect of the cross. We would still be guessing about it. But it was by means of the resurrection that we could know, A, that Jesus was who he said he was, that he could accomplish what he said he accomplished, and that God the Father had fully accepted the sacrifice and reversed the human judgment against Jesus. That Jesus was not a criminal against Judaism, but that he was God's appointed Messiah and Savior. And then the second part, now if you want more on the like, evidence stuff, um, last year, I preached that, so just go to the website, go to April 24th, and there you can listen to a 97-minute sermon on the evidence for the resurrection, okay? It's not really that long, but I'm sure it feels that long. Okay, second, and the second one is the gospel's effect. If you look at the next verses, 9 and 10, it says this, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Now, one of the things that's important to understand is that grace, like salvation, and like another word I can't think of right now, are, have all sort of become religious words to us. When these words fall out of common usage and they become religious words, it's very hard for us to really know what they mean anymore. Um, but grace didn't start out as a religious word. It just simply meant something given— favor, gift, whatever, that was, there was no requirement of entitlement that required it be given. It was just given because the giver wanted to give it. Anything that is given that you can't, you have no claim to, that you receive just because the giver wants to give it, that's grace. And so, people in royalty were always called your grace, right? Because you couldn't ask anything from royalty. They were royal, but anything that they gave you was perfectly free. And of course, it was a little patronizing and sardonic, but that's what, that was the use of the word, the idea, right? And so, when the Bible refers to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the grace of God, what it means is precisely that which we have absolutely no claim of entitlement to on any level. Now, that's really important because um, 
we are wired to believe we're entitled to things. We just, we just were wired for it. It takes two minutes to think that we're entitled to something. Um, and, you, and there's multiple ways to get there. There's not just one way to get there. There's multiple ways to get there. For example, you, a lot of people believe, and this is very common for us, like in our cultural situation, to just simply believe that because we are what we are, we deserve things. So there's this, this sort of entitlement of identity. So if God made me, and I'm a human, and he loves me, and he's loving, then of course he's going to give me stuff. If, and if, there's, if there is a thing called salvation to be given, I'm going to get it automatically. I don't have to, I don't have to believe in Jesus, or there, there couldn't be any conditions for salvation, because God will just, he's loving, he just has to give it to me. I mean, what, how could there be another option? Well, see, there's nothing reasonable about that. If salvation is a free gift, then the giver can put any condition on it that giver wants. It's a free gift, right? And if it has a condition, if the gift has any kind of condition, like that you have to actually receive it, it's perfectly legitimate, and you can either receive it or you cannot. It's totally, it's up to you, and it's up to him. But you see, for a lot of people, that sounds preposterous, not because it's unreasonable, but because they just have a sense of identity entitlement. That's all. Now, it's also, and this is Christians and non-Christians have this, have this one as well. I mean, we're always falling into it. It's just what you, you can call earned entitlement. That is, that you're a good person, right? You're a good person. You do good things. And isn't, there's this thing in the Bible called blessing, right? And isn't basically that, that idea that if you're good, God will bless you, right? If you live a good life, then God owes you a good life, right? Everybody believes that. And, I, you know, I still, I mean, it's very rare you run into anybody who doesn't believe that they're a fantastic person. Even if they say they don't believe that, we all act like it. And that sense of entitlement, that I live a good life so I deserve a good life, makes the idea of grace completely impossible to grasp or accept or receive or live out or enjoy or anything. But there's a third one that is just as unhelpful, and it's one of the ones that every Christian ends up having to face. And that is um, what I've just called the entitlement of having. One of the things that happens sometimes when I, like I'll go over to somebody else's house with Alexi, and they know me, but they've never met her before. And if you haven't met my wife, I have a really, my wife is really cool. She's not just pretty, she's funny, and she's witty, and she's she enjoys the doing things. She's just a really, really cool person. And so we'll, I'll go to somebody's house, and they'll just be like, next time they'll see me, she won't sit in front of her, they'll just be like, dude, you still outkicked your coverage. She, I mean, she's just, she's hilarious. She's fun. I mean, they'll talk about how cool Lexi is. And my response kind of is, you know, I know that, but I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm around it all the time. You know? Like, you know, sometimes, and sometimes people will say stuff about me, and she'll just be like, yeah, but it's not as funny if you live with it all the time. Okay? <laughs> Because, you know, we're just around all the time. So I don't, I don't wake up every morning and I wake up, sit up in bed and look to see if she's still there. Be like, oh my gosh, she's awesome and she's still here. You know, every, every year when we go out on our anniversary, she always goes, I just want you to know, I'm signing up for another year. <laughs> and every time I'm like, yes. But that's, I mean, we, there's this entitlement of having. And so even if you come to the gospel the right way, even if you come to the gospel, recognizing your sinfulness, recognizing you have nothing to plead. God can do whatever he wants. He would be just as glorified to damn you as to save you. Because 
our damnation is completely justified, completely moral, completely proportionate, and he's completely just. And so he could glorify himself by damning us. That would be completely glorifying to him because it's the right thing to do. But he also could choose to glorify himself by saving us because he could express his love and grace towards undeserving people. He has thankfully chosen to glorify himself that way to anybody who would believe. And so we can receive that. But you see, even if you come that way and you go, oh my gosh, that's so great. I, I receive that. Jesus, please save me. I want that. You get baptized. You're in. You're, you know, yeah, this is great. What happens is, what happens after a year or two years or three years? You see, after a while, you just get this entitlement of having. It's not astounding to you anymore. You've just been in a while. I mean, uh, I would, Imagine, like, I've got, I've got three kids, two daughters and a son, and let's say I went up to them today, and I, and I just, you know, busted out three bucks, and I gave everybody a dollar. Now, my kids, if I did that, because I don't give my kids money, they didn't earn, period. And so, if I gave them a dollar each, they would be kind of, ha- they'd be thrilled. They'd be like, oh my gosh, a dollar, right? But if I went the next day and gave them all a buck, they'd still, I'd still get some kind of reaction from them. But, like, what's going to happen in, in, like, eight days? It's nothing, right? It's just, they'll be, like, if I don't do it, night they'll be like, hey, Dad, where's my buck? What? You know, and I'd be like, your dollar, they're mine, I'm giving them, what do you, you know, but they'd be like, where's my buck? I'm, I'm, I'm budgeting now. I'm, I'm counting on this, okay? <laughs> right? That you just, you know, if you have it, you just get the sense you should always have it, right? And that's not true. <laughs> that's why we get angry at God when we get sick. I've been in good health. Now I don't. Meanwhile, there's all kinds of people around us sick and suffering. It doesn't bother us. But then we get sick, and we're like, oh, God is so ungracious. Well, really? Right? So you get—there's this entitlement of having. You just have it. And every Christian has to deal with that. I've had it for 17, 18 years now, you know? I've just—I've had it. It's just not— But one of the things I love about this passage is Paul is always astounded at this. He writes to these people. He started, church on multiple, he started churches on multiple continents now. He writes to these people who are giving him a really hard time. They're not being good pupils, okay? And they're like, I'm not sure if you're that big a deal, whatever. And he writes to me, he's like, look, I am an apostle, but I'm the worst one, and I don't even deserve to be an apostle. There's nothing that deserves to be an apostle. But you know what? God decided to save me. I mean, he came and he threatened my life, and it was so great. Because it turned me around, and then he, he sent me out to do his work, and he just—in fact, the great thing about in Acts, it says to the guy who was going to go pray for Paul right after he was converted, he says, you go tell him how much he's going to suffer because I've picked him to go do this work. Like, it had nothing to do with Paul. God just chose him to do this work, and Paul was astounded by it. And he said, the only thing I could do to show God how appreciative I was was to try to make sure that his grace had an effect— it's all I could do. It's just be like, because he poured out so much on me, all I could do is try the best I could to cooperate with it so that it wasn't without effect, that I wasn't a waste of his love. And so I just, I worked harder than anybody else. But still, even though I worked all that hard, I couldn't even take credit for it, really, because even that impulse was, I know, was coming from the work God was doing in me. You see, it's not just the message of the gospel. It's the message that people really do change. And so there's really two impossible things in this passage, aren't there? There's two things that are very difficult for us in our modern context, in our modern situation to believe. The first, obviously, is the resurrection, right? 
But there's another one in here, and that is the claim that the gospel really does change people, that people really can change, at least when the gospel changes them. But, and here's the, here's the issue. None of those things are unreasonable. Neither of those things are unreasonable. There's a lot of people who act like Jesus rising from the dead is unreasonable. It's not unreasonable. If you stipulate an all-powerful God exists that created the universe, bringing one man back to life is not unreasonable. And if you say, well, why just one? Well, if that one was the centerpiece of a global and cosmic salvation that preceded him bringing everybody else back to life at the appointed time, then you can't really argue with that. So why is it hard to believe, right? Still lots of, people, lots of trouble with it. Why are we so skeptical? And I think for both of these things, it's because the, the situation that we're in has these biases that creep in over time that seem incredibly reasonable. They work their way into our thinking, and then they work their way into our feeling. And so we hear people really can change, and we go, that's not true. I've been around longer than that. I know. But it's really not knowledge. It's bias. And bias has really negative effects. Let me just tell you a quick story about this, and we'll wrap it up around the other way. Um, have you heard of the show 2020? It's like a news expose kind of truth show. Well, a few years back, they did a story on this guy named Casey Price, who was a televangelist pastor who I'm not a fan of, and I think he probably has way too much money, okay? So I'm not saying he's a fantastic guy, but they did this story on him, and they were, and they were talking about a bunch of different preachers who seemed to be too rich. And they, they put up this video of him preaching where he said this, I live in a 25-room mansion. I have my own $6 million yacht. I have my own private jet. I have my own helicopter and several luxury automobiles. And then they stopped the click there and they just talked about how this guy is so wealthy and how it's terrible. Well, it turns out, if you get the video of the whole sermon, apparently, um, it's a hypothetical quotation of a person who, who is wealthy but not godly. And he goes on to say, you know, you can be, have all that kind of success, but if there isn't a generosity that comes from righteousness and truth and the gospel transforming you, you it's, there's nothing. There's no—and now, I don't agree with the whole preaching that the gospel brings success anyway. I think that's false. But if you believe that, what he's saying, if you believe that, you've got to believe this. But they just took it out of context and put it in there. Now, why did that happen? That's not the first time the n news media of any kind has unfavorably reported on— pastors, right? Why do they do Is it just because people in news media hate pastors? Probably not, right? There's, but, so what's, there are other explanations, and those other explanations aren't in the cussedness and meanness of the people themselves, but in the context that they're living in, which is what creates these un, unconscious biases. For example, um, media outlets don't have money trees, apparently, right? They don't, or gold mines beneath them. They have to make money. They're like any other business. So they have to increase viewership. Well, what increases viewership, right? Stories that create intense emotional reactions in the viewership. That's what does it. And so stories that make you angry or outraged, that make you angry enough to feel morally self-righteous, or that the person in the story is dumb enough to make you feel intellectually self-righteous. Either way, all those things tend to cause a more loyal viewership. And the more media goes for that, the more we accommodate to that. That's pretty obvious in the modern spread of things. So, stories that create—so maximizing moral outrage is important, right? Or just finding stories. I mean, can you imagine being a reporter? That does not sound like an easy job to me. It's not like you have some crystal ball where you get up and you, like, wave your hands over it and it tells you where the five most interesting things that are going to happen in your city are going to happen that day. So what do you do? 
Well, you look at police reports. You figure out who went to the hospital. You, you use imperfect and unobjective means to find out what's happening, right? It's not their fault. That's just that's the world we live in. It's, they're not omniscient. But what does it do? Well, it creates a bias for reporting on crime, reporting on injury, and things like that. I mean, they do, why would a news reporter go around and report on husbands being good husbands? Right? Like, found this guy. His name is Jim Anderson. Turns out that for 20 years, he's come home every night to his family and disciplined and cared for his children and helped his wife out occasionally and so forth. Right? I mean, like, there's nothing interesting about that, right? So, you see, but, but see, the problem here, though, is, is that what our biases often do is exactly what it did in this 2020 story. It, re- it doesn't just pull back our ability to believe. It actually reverses the truth for falsity. I mean, think, think about the irony of this. 2020 is a truth expose show. That's all they do is they find these opaque stories and they expose the truth. And they did the opposite. In fact, they got sued for it. They did the opposite. Not because I don't think they're mean, but because the biases built into their lifestyle blinded them to something that should have been really obvious, that you should watch more than 12 seconds of a video. Right? But you see, I have the same issues, right? I'm supposed to tell the truth as a pastor, but do I try to make it funnier or whatever to make you want to come back? Of course I do. I have to do that. But can that contort what I say and how I say it and whether I'm honest and direct? Of course it can. I mean, every occupation, every calling has these kinds of biases built into it. It's just wrong to be like, oh, those news reporters are evil people. No, they're not. They're just like you. They're just, their job has different biases that make it difficult to be completely honest and you get these kinds of things. But they, see that, here's the problem. That's what happens in our faith. We think we know it all. And so you go through life and you hear this idea that the gospel changes people and you've seen too many people not change. You've, throughout their life, you've seen a too big a swath of people not change. If you've gone to church, you might have looked around at church and seen people that not sufficiently changed. And so obviously religion doesn't change people. And probably you've tried to change in some area of your life and just not had nearly as much transformation as you'd like. And so the idea that, oh yeah, the gospel changes people, that just doesn't sound very plausible. But that's what happens when you only know a little bit about Christian faith. See, all those biases are actually exactly what we should expect if Christian faith is true. Right? Christians believe in the doctrine of depravity, it's called. That is, that we don't really want to change. Even when we say we do, we don't really want to change. We don't really want to turn to God. Put enough moral pressure on us and we'll adjust our behaviors a little bit to get along. But we don't, we don't really want to be completely transformed from the inside out in every area of our life. Hand our life completely over to the one who made us. Recognize that he is king and we are not and to live in that with all our heart. That's not what we really want. And if that were true, would people change all the time? Of course not. You'd have a lot of people who tried to change but didn't. Or... Um, what the gospel teaches, what this passage teaches even, is that it's nothing else really changes people like the gospel does. And most people who think they believe the gospel don't. They believe some other contortion of Christian religion that really doesn't have much to do with what the Bible actually teaches about how we're changed. 
There's some form of legalistic, moralistic, religion-based entitlement. And when that's true, it, that doesn't change. That doesn't change anybody. If you don't have this sense of grace that fuels joy, that fuels transformation, it doesn't do anything for you. If you believe that if you're a good person, God will bless you, and believing in Jesus sort of helps with that, and he's a moral example, and that's your Christianity, it will never change you. And friends, I think that's, pretty, that's the majority of American Christians. The idea that we'd go to church and we wouldn't see people change all that much, well, that makes perfect sense because most people who are Christians and, and that they self-identify as Christians and they go to church a little bit, they don't believe the gospel. And so it doesn't change them. And even if you come into church and you meet somebody, you know, who's surly or whatever, and you're like, that guy's not really that nice. Well, see, you didn't meet him 10 years ago. You know? I mean, you don't know. I mean, Christina Lewis once said, it's not, if you have Bill and Jane, it's not whether Bill, who's a Christian, is nicer than Jane, who isn't a Christian. It's what would Bill have been like without the gospel, and what could Jane be like if she believed it? Right? You can't compare two people to each other. It doesn't work that way. But the, but the point, the main point here is that religion doesn't change the gospel. Religion doesn't change people. The gospel changes people. A belief in grace a belief that we have nothing to commend ourselves. We're completely lost. God freely gives us everything that we need. That that stimulates joy. That joy produces the bravery and the strength and the fortitude to make it. So where does that leave us? Let me wind it up here. Um, here's where it leaves us. One is, um, you might not think you can believe in Jesus but you can't. You might feel like the whole, the whole Jesus thing is religious and it's, it's kind of whatever, you know, whatever biases you might have. Um, those biases tend to reside um, more in people who know a little bit about Christian faith, a little bit about the Bible, a little bit about the gospel, but not that much more. And so it's very easy to think you have Christianity's number, you know? I've been, I went to church when I was a kid, you know? You know, I go to church sometimes. I, 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 know, I get it. I get it. I've been there. I've done that. It doesn't work. <laughs> no. No. You haven't been there. You haven't done that. You don't have Christianity's number. You didn't ever go deep enough. And you don't, you've never seen the gospel or you've never believed it. Because I don't want to be condescending, but it is very transformative. If you believe in grace, and if entitlement really dies, most of us never have never killed entitlement. And when entitlement lives, joy doesn't. And there's nothing to change us. If you will investigate and look at some of the biases that creep in, not because you want to be, you didn't want to believe the gospel, but just because of the world we live in, the culture we live in. If you look at those things, you'll be surprised that your objections aren't so much based on super fantastic reasons, but on biases that come in because of the culture we live in, and they need to be deconstructed. But the second thing is, is that if you're not changing as fast as you want to, if you're like, Nick, I believe the God, I, I'm a Christian, I'm not changing as fast as I want to. Well, one of two things could be happening. One, you believe in some kind of Christianity, but you really don't have a hold of grace yet. That could be a big issue, and that's something that you can, we can look at. And the second thing is, it may be God's intention to grow you slowly in order to sufficiently humiliate you. It's really important for you to get really deeply humiliated by Jesus. Because, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, God has set this thing up so that no one can boast. 
You are not a big deal. Only when you are lost is God big enough that you can really enjoy him. You have to be sufficiently humiliated. And until you accept that humiliation, you just get it more. And God can't leave that part off. You might be like, well, if God could just leave that part off and just, you know, kind of get me there and I could be successful. That's not how it works. The most important part is your humiliation. And mine, I have to be really humiliated and then, only then can I enjoy God for what he's done and because my entitlement will finally die. And so if you feel, you're like, oh man, I wish I was further along. Well, guess what? Jesus died for people who are not as far along as they should be. Jesus died not just for non-Christians, he died for Christians too. And if you're not as far along, maybe you need to look in whether or not grace is really at the heart of what you believe and maybe you just are in the humiliation process and it's going to be ugly for a little while, meaning 30 years or so, you know? So consider that. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for the patience of these folks. I hope that you take something that I said and drill it in. I pray that wherever they've been stimulated or offended or found things thoughtful, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would bring conviction and leading and encouragement and truth. And I pray, Father, that they would experience the blessing of what, what Easter and Resurrection Sunday should be all about. Amen.